According to a McKinsey study, there are more women in entry-level retail jobs than in any other industry. However, as their careers in retail continue, only 30% of these women make it to senior-level leadership positions, and of those, only 13% make it to the C-suite. This is the Women's Retail Collective podcast, where we pull together retail's most influential women to talk about their careers, how they made it to these senior-level and C-suite positions, and how they lead their organizations through a rapidly evolving retail industry. So today, I'd like to introduce our guest, Rachel Elias Ween. Rachel is founder and CEO of Ween Plus, a strategic consulting firm serving the real estate and retail sectors. And Rachel, I want to thank you for being on the show with us today. Thanks, Anne. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, so let's, I want to kind of start at the beginning and and really learn a little bit about you first before we go into the the questions that I have. Um, You know, Chris and I, in our kind of development of this kind of retail lab and experience that we've been creating, we were surprised early on when we started just how many people um, in the commercial real estate sector, especially were interested in where the future of retail was headed. And this is really, you know, your specialty. So I'd love for you to kind of just start there and give us an overview of how you kind of came into this, this career that you have today. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Um, just as you mentioned, I spend the bulk of my time looking at where retail is headed in the future and what are the things that companies can be doing to adapt their business to meet the needs of the changing customer. And and specifically, how do they meet those needs in the physical footprint? And that could be in physical retail stores. It could be in their traditional distribution network. It could be in their new uh, online robotic distribution network and all of those different interactions of those facilities and, and really the strategy behind creating a, a portfolio that services the customer. Uh, so so that's, that's really the nutshell. Um, how did I start doing this? How early do you yeah. want me to, to start with this? I mean, I mean, take me back. Like, wh- how did you, did you go to school for this? Like, where did, sure. where did you kind of get going on, on where you are today? So a little bit of everything. Um, I'm the product of a matriarchal environment. I was raised by a very strong mother. She, in fact, was not only an entrepreneur, she started two businesses. She was also an engineer. Both of my parents were engineers. Uh, and what kind so of engineers? I, well, she was a systems engineer. She actually gr- um, graduated from the University of South Carolina with the first year that a systems engineering degree, which is essentially computers, uh, the first year that that degree was offered. And my father was a mechanical engineer. They met at Pratt and Whitney Aircraft, where she was a rocket engineer and he was a what? jet engineer. <laughs> she was one of three female engineers of probably 3,000 at the oh time in the gosh. early 70s. So yeah. you, and then you they... won the bring mom and dad to work contest at school <laughs> growing up. Like you have the coolest parents with the coolest jobs. <laughs> well, this was a long time ago. And since after they, they changed, they actually started a couple of businesses uh, together and then one, one separately. My mother um, actually started a consultancy um, in the late 70s and, and it was involving computers and programming. So, um, so we have, I guess, a legacy of consultants, and my, even my grandmother was an entrepreneur. So um, wow. I have entrepreneurial blood, 
uh, running through my veins. So that's, that was really um, the start of it. So really from the get-go, there was um, always kind of an expectation that I would be in a technical field and potentially even I thought I saw that entrepreneurialism was something that was really, um, you know, an opportunity for me. So I went to the University of Florida. I have an undergraduate and graduate degrees in architecture um, and a, a business degree as well. Okay. So I was coming out with um, a background in finance and also in, you know, a technical building um, background. So I was hired by Ernst & Young in their, and I, I was actually in two practices in their real estate group, in their transaction advisory services and their construction advisory services practice. Um, and in those areas, it was really, it was a fantastic, fantastic um, place to learn and to really build my toolbox of skills. We were working for companies, I would say generally companies whose primary business was not real estate. Okay. On their real estate assets. So U.S. Steel, General Dynamics, uh, the Mets, you know, they have large <laughs> real estate facilities, sure. but yet this is not their primary business. So they would hire uh, Ernst & Young to be their advisors um, for their real estate portfolio. Okay. And um, during the course of my tenure there, we worked on some large uh, mergers and acquisitions when CVS bought Eckerd, when Sprint bought Nextel, when Duncan Brands bought Baskin Robbins. So I got quite a bit of retail exposure there. Um, and it was really a fantastic learning experience, great managers, uh, great training environment. And in about 2007, we, my husband and I moved back to Florida. And this was uh, to the St. Petersburg area where we are now. And it okay. was uh, to work for the Assembler Company, which was a large private retail developer. So okay. in 2007, I thought it was a good idea <laughs> to build shopping centers. Sure. You didn't know what was coming. It's fine. It's fine. Who knew? Seems, Who seems knew? Like so, yeah, good idea at the time. So, so exactly. So um, I like to say that I was at the Assembler Company for a hot second for 2007 and 2008. And uh, in late 08, I launched uh, Wien Plus, which is really focused on uh, real estate owners. And, okay. and those owners may be owners that manage uh, other tenants, or they may be owner operators in the case of retailers. So there really wasn't a strategic advisory consultancy that was focused on those market. And so who, the assembler, go oh, ahead. Sorry, I was going to say, who were some of the first people that you were working with, like those retail owner and operators? Sure. So actually, the assembler company uh, was one of my first clients. So I, I okay. started my consultancy. Uh, the assembler company uh, became one of my first clients. And actually, we stayed together for 10 years. Uh, and, and shortly thereafter, I started working with Publix Supermarkets. And okay. Publix is based in Lakeland, so they're not too far away. Uh, they are the sixth largest grocery retailer in the U.S. They have about 1,400 locations throughout the Southeast, and they are the largest employee-owned company, I believe, on the planet uh, wow. with about 170,000 associates. That's incredible. So, you know, that is that kind of the first major like retail client that you were kind of owning as part of Wien Plus? Yeah, absolutely. So okay. I, I would say that I, I tend to have um, two active clients at a time and I tend to work with um, one 
one owner and one retailer. And for 10 years, that retailer was public supermarkets. Okay. And it was really a fantastic time to be working with them. They were changing their ownership philosophy, I guess you could say. They were primarily leased stores, and they had a handful of owned stores. And over the course of, um, well, now it's been 10 years, but over the course of about three or three to five years, they tripled in size um, and, and ended up owning about 400 shopping centers now. So that makes public supermarkets one of the largest shopping center owners in the country, clearly top 10. And so they are not just owning their store as is the case with many other grocery retailers. They're also owning the adjacent tenant spaces. Okay. And it's really a unique position for a retailer to be in. And they are probably the only retailer that has that kind of scope and scale of other tenants within their footprint. Which I imagine has got to be really interesting for you too, as the strategy arm of that company, as you're starting to think about where retail's headed and like what you, you know, a grocery store is a great example of a place that you're going to on a repeat basis. What are those other things and components that you can put adjacent to a grocery space? Because you're kind of maximizing on that convenience of being able to accomplish so many things in one place. So I'd love to hear kind of how you're thinking about that as you're working with Publix or any new clients, where are things going and where, where are you seeing, um, you know, people who own pieces of real estate, what are they thinking about as they're kind of designing for the next kind of wave of, of the future? Well, I think for, for Publix, it was really a great opportunity for them to put their um, deep uh, you know, capital reserves to work. So they have um, quite a bit of cash uh, that they are able to then invest into the real estate portfolio and say, we want to have strategic control of our assets. We want to know that as the customer is changing, if we want our store to change with it, if we want it to grow, if we want it to shrink, if we want it to change in other ways, we have the control to do that. And so that puts them in a very unique position, not just owning the box, but also owning the spaces next to them. So they can decide to expand you know, dramatically or even shrink. And, and if they didn't own the box, the uh, adjacent tenant spaces, they would not have as much control over that. So um, you know, a Safeway, Albertsons, Kroger, they own primarily um, when they're owning their stores, they're owning just the box. Okay. Um, so how is it changing? Um, well, that, that might be a good segue to talk a bit about Kroger. Yeah, sure. So, Let's do it. I love Kroger. So, <laughs> I love Kroger too. Um, I live in Florida. We don't have any Kroger in Florida, but um, but I've been working with uh, Kroger for a couple of years now. Uh, we started in 2018 and really came in as part of their Restock Kroger initiative, which is all about adapting the company for how the customer is adapting, right? And, and yeah. the growing omni-channel needs of the consumer. And so that plays out certainly in the traditional retail uh, of, of merch and ops, but it also plays out in the physical footprint. So what are the different ways that we should be thinking about the network of our physical footprint and how do we layer the retail stores with the traditional distribution network? And then, and now with their significant um, rollout of the Ocado macro distribution centers, if you will, yeah, it really uh, the the whole world is changing for grocery retail, and it's been extremely exciting to be um, working with companies that are on the forefront. And I and I would certainly put Kroger and Publix 
both at the top of the list for retailers that are really thinking differently about how they can service their customers and in a profitable mission-driven way. How did you know that this was kind of a, a path for you, Rachel? Is this something that you've, I mean, you write, you um, are a, a thought leader in the retail industry. Did you just kind of create this this job for yourself or had you seen this um, kind of in existence? So it's interesting. As you say it like that, now it seems like in hindsight, it feels like I I did create a job yeah. for myself. I don't, I don't think I really thought about it at the time. Um, you know, I did, I was lucky to build a toolbox of skills through my time at EY, through my time at Assembler. And what I noticed in the downturn was that there really wasn't anyone focused on these issues. Mm-hmm. And I thought that I had a unique perspective and, you know, really beginning my career in client service and, and, you know, save for, um, you know, the time that I was a developer at, at Assembler, I've really been in professional services and in client service my entire career. So I've, I've really spent time adapting to the, the needs and the culture of the client. Yeah problem solving, what it is that's going on, where the opportunities are, and then creating and living through the implementation. So I'm living both in the consulting world and also, but at my core, I'm an operator, right? Because I don't just come in and write a report and leave. I am generally with clients for 12 to 24 months or even years and years and years. Okay. So I would say, yes, it sounds... It sounds easier now to say that this is somewhat somewhat um, created, but but it really it's changed and it's adapted over time. In in the first few years of the business, it was certainly in response to the downturn. It was how can we survive? How can we make sure that this never happens to us again? How can we reposition our business and uh, our service lines and the way we're addressing the customer so that we don't have to be in the position that we were at in 2008, 9, and 10. Okay. And then it's kind of shifted, and it was more about internal reinvention, I guess, and, and, and how, do we, how can we be proactive about creating value for stakeholders? So, and I, I would say that that probably, that, that change happened in our business in... 2016, I would say, okay. with uh, our, our engagement with Alexander and Baldwin, which is a publicly traded company in Hawaii that was converting from a C corp to a REIT, and and that was really the start of of I'd say this this second chapter in the business where it's it's about finding a management team that is proactive at looking internally and saying there are things that we can be doing there are things that are it challenges the status quo it is different than what we've been doing in the past and if we don't do this proactively someone will come and do this to us so why don't we be proactive about taking the opportunities that we have and i think that in each case since then i've had a client that's really looked proactively internally and then brought me in to support that effort and and that would be Alexander and Baldwin, Kamehameha Schools, Kroger. Uh, they all fit into that bucket. 
Rachel, one thing that I imagine, because, you know, these companies that are bringing you in at this point, uh, part of the reason is because, you know, you're really kind of a, a thought leader expert in where retail is going. And so in order to look, I think, proactively, especially at what a company is doing already, um, they rely on you for this expertise. Where are you getting the material, the inspiration for your writing? Um, what, what do you kind of source to keep you curious about what's happening in the retail industry? You know, I think a lot of it comes from inbound questions that I get. You know, I'm, I'm speaking with investment managers and pension fund advisors and REITs and retailers. And, you know, I'm, I'm getting some really interesting questions. And a lot of times I'm able to address them through our posts and our newsletters. And we get really great feedback and I enjoy doing it. I think that it, it forces me to question some of my assumptions and really to, to go deeper into the sound bites that you might hear yeah. um, in the industry. And so I, I really try to get deeper into some of the causation and some of what the results could be and what are the underlying opportunities. And so, you know, lately, you know, we certainly have an interest in grocery, but lately we've actually been spending quite a bit of time talking about healthcare and the uh, recent forays that both Walmart and Walgreens have made into providing essentially retail services of health. And it's, it's in a broader way than just, you know, clinic services. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of that happen. I mean, CVS is doing a lot of experimentation in that area, even like Sam's Club and Costco too. So it should be interesting to see where that goes. Rachel, I have another question for you. As we kind of look at past real estate, um, either from the development side um, or from the strategy and consulting side, do you, how do you feel like uh, women are represented in that, in those sectors or in those categories? Do you feel like women are still the minority in those areas or do you see more prominence of um, female, like especially in the leadership positions at those companies? There's very little representation of women at executive leadership positions in the commercial real estate industry. I think um, there's certainly a long way to go. And, and part of it starts with schools. It starts with you know, women wanting to go into real estate and finance um, as, as careers and, and sticking with it and, and not being moved into uh, areas outside of P&L. What do you feel like women have to contribute as you've been working um, really as a CEO and founder of a company in re- retail and real estate? What do you think that you've been able to contribute that um, provides value for both of these industries, um, being a, a woman uh, and being a mom and a working mom? Well, I mean, I, I certainly think that I've served as a mentor to young men and women um, that are entering the real estate industry and entering retail. And I'd like to describe to them all the different paths that they can take to be successful and that they can do that within the existing confines of corporate America. They can do it through entrepreneurialism and that they can chart their own path. And if they're passionate about 
uh, you know, working with teams and, and creating something that's different and impactful, that there's really no limit to what they can do. And I think that people are really opening their minds to that now. And there's a lot of folks that are doing a fantastic job at, at really breaking the mold of what success looks like. And, you know, I hope that I can contribute and, and do my part in, in shepherding the next generation and, and working, you know, as a peer with, with folks in the industry now. What catches you off guard, Rachel, when you're, when you're mentoring kind of the next generation coming into these industries? Um, what catches you off guard and what kind of advice have you given uh, those individuals? Uh, this is a great question. So what catches me off guard as, as a mentor to both young men and young women, Yeah, the young women always ask about balancing career and family, balancing, you know, moving for a spouse or always ask those questions. The young men never ask those questions. I believe there's, there's just an assumption that they'll figure it out where sure. I believe that the, the young women are looking to, I don't know, perhaps curate their, you know, their lives is with just the right balance between these things. And, you know, the advice that I give is to find something that you love doing and to spend your time doing it. And, and, you know, that you can find balance throughout your career. And sometimes you may be leaning more on your career and sometimes you may be leaning more on your family. And sometimes you may ask your, your partner to be taking on more of the burden or, or less. And, and it's impossible to chart that course when you're getting your MBA or when you're just starting out, that if you find something that you love and you work to be the very best at it, the rest should hopefully fall into place. Yeah, I think that's that's amazing advice. Um, we interviewed uh, Karen Stuckey a little while ago on this podcast, and she she said something very similar where, you know, the balance thing is a myth. And so, you know, you have to figure out what fulfills you, like you're saying, Rachel, like you just, you have to find that thing that you love and then you figure out how to kind of find the appropriate balance. But I I think that's really interesting that um, in most cases, it's the women asking those questions. So, um, well, Rachel, just to conclude um, all of that we've, we've talked about today with you, you've had such an interesting journey and really have, have kind of created your own position and you've been so successful at doing that. As you think back to all the people that you interact at, interacted with, you know, um, at ENY and as you moved into Florida and started, you know, really developing the, the roots of your Wien Plus business there, if you had to go back and you had to write somebody a thank you note for some impact that they had on your career, um, you know, positive or negative, who would you write that thank you note to and what would you say to them? Ooh, can I, can I do two? Sure. <laughs> All right. So, so the first would be to Craig Share, who was a mentor of mine in graduate school. I actually, we get assigned graduate uh, mentors and he actually wasn't one that I was assigned to. I overheard him talking at a conference, inviting his mentee to breakfast the next day. And I, I said, Hey, Craig, uh, my mentor didn't show up at the conference. Can I join you at breakfast? And oh, uh, nice. from, from then on, Craig was my mentor. And you know, he has three daughters. And I think that really helped give him a, a great perspective in, 
in uh, lending me career advice. And, and he actually started his career at Arthur Anderson. So when the time came for me to, to choose to go to EY, you know, he talked about the, the skills that you'd be building and, and working with the very top companies in, in the world and how that would really um, set me apart. And I, and I really appreciate that. And he actually um, is the reason why I came back to the assembler company in St. Petersburg. Um, and I think the second one would be Mark Steele who okay. was uh, a manager of mine at, um, at EY. And Mark is uh, a, a military guy. He's a graduate of West Point, And he would take the time with me to teach me what I needed to do to get the work done. And he would say, I know I could do this faster than it takes to teach you how to do this. But <laughs> me teaching you how to do this will allow you to do this the right way forever. And that was something that I really took with me. And it's the way that I think about working with teams and working with individuals and, and growing their capability and, and how that is a reflection of, of, of the effort that we put in together. That sounds like two very, very important mentors. Um, thanks for sharing that with us today. I think that's good advice for, for all of us too listening. Uh, Rachel, I really want to thank you for being on the podcast with us today. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, uh, one, are you open to that? And two, if yes, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, um, they're welcome to send me an email, rwein at weintl.us. I'm also on LinkedIn and Twitter at Rachel Elias Ween, and I would love for anyone to reach out. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Rachel. Um, it was really wonderful having you and hearing your story. Thanks for having me. <laughs>